Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo podcast. Now on this week's show we're going to look at again the devastating impact of these ongoing floods. We're also going to discuss is it possible for Dubbo Regional Council to help create some affordable housing solutions? While we're also going to reflect back on what has been an award-winning week for two of our major tourist attractions. Hello there, Matt. How's your week been? Yeah, really busy, actually. Really good. And I'm all dressed up now. People can't see us, obviously. We're, it's not Mate, a visual you got the medium. tie on tonight. This is, this is fantastic. It's a very professional look you got. Hey, well, thank you. Obviously, yeah, yeah, sorry, not there. But I've obviously been involved with the Show You and Celebration this weekend. Yes. So I'm still dressed up straight from that. But that's been a pretty exciting weekend. But we'll talk more about that Absolutely. during the podcast. But yeah, I don't expect us always to get this dressed up for it. Oh, this, mate, look, this I, I appreciate the fact you made an effort, I tell you. Yeah, thank you. You do look good. You do look good. So look, as you say, we'll get to the Show and Gardens there shortly as as well, because that has obviously been a fantastic day of celebrations there today. Yeah. But look, I do want to start in regards to floods. Um, look, I know we've talked about this already on the podcast, but last Sunday, of course, the rains came back and, uh, and so many towns and um, people have been affected by these floods. I noticed in particular the fact that Wellington, part of our regional area, um, there's been some devastation over there, hasn't there, in regards to this. Yeah. Now, in regards to in particular, I want to talk about the low-level bridge over there. Now, the Duke of Wellington Bridge in particular, what's happened there? Because I saw some of the stuff in the news there, and it looks as though it's completely gone. Is that correct? or? Well, the bridge isn't, but the problem is you can't get to the bridge. Okay. So that makes it a bit hard. It's a bridge to nowhere at the moment. And it is disappointing and probably a bit frustrating as well. And obviously seen some of the media mm. reports during the week. So I want to give you a bit of background and just go through and explain how we've arrived at where we've arrived. Okay. And the way going forward will be pretty tough and I think pretty expensive as well. But I don't have all the answers for that yet. But I want to just give a bit of background and, and tell you where we've gotten to. So at one stage during the last council term, early 2018, councillors were concerned about the erosion occurring before the Duke of Wellington Bridge. Now, you've got a street called Gaboldian Street that feeds down on the southern side of the river and goes across the Duke of Wellington. The Duke of Wellington goes across the Macquarie River. Now, go back one step, sir. You'll remember back about 1989 when the main bridge at Wellington got knocked down by by the the truck that caught the top brackets or the the top supports and took the bridge down. And so they put a temporary pontoon bridge in the armed forces came in, the army I think it was, came in, put a pontoon bridge in. After that, they built a low-level bridge, the Duke of Wellington Bridge, because they could do that much quicker than do the main bridge. So people used the low-level bridge until the main bridge was up and running. Mm. Once the main bridge was up and running, people still used the low-level, but not anywhere near as many people. Gaboldian Street feeds down onto that, and that's just at the junction of the Bell River as the Bell River flows into the Macquarie River. Yeah. The councillors back in early 2018 were a bit concerned about some of the erosion that was occurring along where the Bell River joined in there. So they asked for a report. In fact, they asked for an urgent report into the status of that and some other high erosion areas along the Macquarie River. Right. That report came back. The Soil Conservation Service did that report, came back to councillors. Well, I don't know if it went to councillors. came back to council. November 2018 is dated on that report. I've seen that report. Mm. And it had several areas along the river, along the Macquarie River, that were high-priority areas. One area in particular was that particular junction there where the report had mentioned that it had been eroding over the last decade or more at the rate of about three metres per year. 
Right. Which is fairly significant. It's a fairly significant level of erosion. It is, that's right. Now, there's not a lot of land between Gabolian Street and the river, so it doesn't take a genius to work out that at three metres per year, you'll get to the point where you're Mm. getting to the stage where it's touching that road or maybe eroding into that road. It did mention that report that it's not as if it's three metres evenly every year. Flood events have a greater impact. So 2010, when the floods were in 2010, there was more taken away, then it settled down for a few years. 2016 more taken away again, and then it settled down. And obviously 2018, the drought beginning-ish of the drought Mm. then, so obviously not a lot of erosion happening then, but that was the time to do something about it because we had this drought that went 2018, 2019, even into 2020, when there's low flows in the river, what a perfect time to actually do something about it. So the Soil Conservation Service report came back to councillors. They had that report. They actually held a workshop about that particular report only that report, that was the whole yeah. topic of that particular workshop on the 4th of February 2019. So they spoke to who at that meeting? Well, they would have had that report. They would have had councillors. They would have had staff there. I don't know that they would have had any external experts because that report spoke for itself. It had all the information you needed right. about different parts of the river. So this report, Matt, so this would have gone back to council and council then, from this report, it was basically up to them to pretty well you know, act on the report, I suppose. Yeah, spot on. That would have been the logic. Now, I wasn't sitting in that workshop. I wasn't on council, obviously. But I can imagine at that workshop, they would have discussed actions, would have discussed what particular things you could do as a result of that report. Now, in that report, it identified that particular area as a high-priority area. It said there's severe, and I'm quoting here from the report, severe erosion along approximately 270 metres of the bank up to 10 metres high. It talked about that three metres per year. That's been since 2005. And then it talked about the fact that the top of the bank was now only within 40 metres of Gabolian Street. Hmm. So that's pretty close when you think about three metres per year. Now, it did say that the Macquarie River Bridge, possibly there would be impact on that within 10 to maybe 20 years, best case scenario. Hmm. And it gave some options there and gave some prices in terms of what those options might cost. Obviously, in 2018, Soil Conservation Service couldn't know that in 2022, we would have almost the wettest year on record, and the erosion would accelerate quite quickly there. Sorry to interrupt you there. So we're basically saying then the fact that from this report, and I suppose thinking back to why council may be held off on making this, are you saying here that potentially they're under the impression that it may have taken another 10 to 20 years potentially for this erosion to take place to the effect of what's happened right now. They're obviously in a very short space of time. This hasn't been 10 or 20 years. It's literally been four years. Yeah, correct. Well, I suppose the report tried to give some identification. Again, at that average of three metres a year, it was within 40 metres of it. So you look Mm. at that and you'd say, well, three twelves are 36, 13, 3, 39, so maybe 40 metres, maybe you've got that sort of time frame. But it did also mention in there that the flood events in 2010 and 2016 was where that major erosion had occurred. Now, probably you'd look at that and say, well, we know we're getting some different climatic conditions because of climate change. We're getting more extremes of drought and flood. So you might get another flood event coming on at some stage. But Mm. I suppose my frustration is that At that workshop on the 4th of February 2019, Mm. they had all the information, they had this report, they'd done all the work, then they needed to give some direction to the staff of council because council staff have to adhere within council resolutions. They have to adhere to a budget, for example, or they have to follow council resolutions. But from that workshop, 
councillors did nothing. Mm. And we've often talked about it in terms of when, when I talk to people about decision-making, yeah. when I talk about leadership, even in business. No decision is still a decision. It's a decision of inaction. So sometimes people yeah. hold off and make a decision. What should we do here, sir? Well, you could do A or B, but they sound like decisions, but doing nothing is still a decision. So are you aware then of any decisions that were made at that point in time? Did Council at the time direct their workers to do any action to try to fix up this situation? There is no resolution of Council after that meeting to direct the staff to do anything. So unfortunately, they had the workshop, they had the discussion. I don't know what happened at the discussion. They might have said, don't worry about it, we've got 10 years. They might have said, let's act very quickly. Mm. But I would have hoped after that workshop, there would have been something that came forward to a council meeting, some resolution. If the resolution was to do nothing, wait around for 10 years, mm. then have that as a resolution of council. If the resolution was, let's go and fix that problem immediately, yeah. let's go and search out some funding for it, whatever the decision was, I would hope to see a resolution of council. There was no resolution of council, so of course, absolutely nothing happened. Fast forward now, four years, this group of councillors became aware of that Soil Conservation Service report in August this year. So okay. we didn't know it existed. We weren't on council at the time. Yep. Yep. We found out about that particular report. We had a look at that report, read that report, and we've taken no action yet for the simple reason that now is the absolute worst time to take any action because you've got record high levels of flow of that river. So you can't do anything. It would be incredibly expensive and I would say a waste of public funds to go and try and take action when the river is so high. The mm. time to do it was when yeah. the drought was ago. on four years ago. That's exactly right. So with that lack of action from four years ago, fast forward now, mm. then you've got this severe erosion that's occurred and now what you've ended up with, back to your original question is, mm. We have gotten to the point where the erosion has reached Gabolian Street. It's washed away the entrance to that particular bridge. The bridge still stands there at this stage. Right, but the entrance to it is gone. So you can't actually drive a car down to the entrance of it. Now, I was in Wellington last week for an inspection of the bridge, went down and had a look at both sides of the bridge and just to see what it all looked like. What we've got to do now, so this is the hard part, it's the old prevention is better than cure. Mm. The problem we've got now is we're going to get some engineers to look at the bridge. We want okay. to know whether the structure of the bridge is still okay. Yep. Once we work that out, then we'll start looking at what are the – well, go back a step. If the structure of the bridge is okay, then we'll look at what we might do with the entrance. Is it worthwhile to go and fill the entrance back in and then do some treatment to protect that? And how expensive is that going to be? The estimation in the report talked about doing the treatment that was required – might be in the vicinity of $800,000 to maybe $1.2 million. I can guarantee now... I was going to say, is that a feasible figure? Like, to me, that well, seems it very much on the low side. Well, it would have been at the time to prevent the problem. Yeah, okay. But now, I can guarantee that that won't even come close to it. No. So we don't know the information yet. Okay. We'll have to go through, get the engineering reports, get the estimations of what's required, and then go back out to the community and say, here is what we have as some options what do you think? And even if I go back to that lack of action from that workshop, even getting that report out into the public, that report was never Wasn't advertised, released. was never released into the public because that's not my bridge, that's not my Gabolian Street, that's the community. So the community had a right to know about that. Yeah. We've got another issue that we've got to look at as well where we've got the Tenworth Street pedestrian bridge You've got some erosion that's occurring there, yes, and that's the, the same in that same report. That's identified as a high priority area as well. That now, was in the same report. That in came that out same four report. Years ago. Okay. Now that's not as bad an area because you haven't got people trying to drive across a bridge mm. just there. Absolutely. We've had to actually 
change the route of track O'Reilly there ever so slightly to protect that now with some of the erosion that's occurred. But again, that's something we've got to look at. Now's not the time to fix that problem. The time to fix that problem is when we've got the next drought, which I'm sure isn't that far away. No. So we'll have to look at that. We'll have to look at Gabolian Street. We'll have to look at what we can possibly do. Maybe moving the bridge is the best option. Maybe just closing it and forgetting about it. Maybe it's too expensive. I don't know the answer. But at this stage, we've got to go through a process and find out what the answer might be. Now, Matt, uh, on a far more positive note, uh, the Tourism Awards, the New South Wales Tourism Awards were held during the week. And aren't we all very, very proud to say the fact that two of our wonderful uh, enterprises here in Dubbo, of course, the Old Dubbo Jail and the Western Plains Zoo, from the sound of things, have cleaned up. So tell us about it. How did they go? What, what actual prize did they win this year? So the Old Dubbo Jail won the Silver Award for the Cultural Tourism category. Right. And that's as a result of some of the work that our staff have done down there recently with some help from the state government in terms of funding yep. to actually change the – I'm not sure if you've been in that area now, but you can actually see where – Actually, my daughter works there these days. Oh, so there you I, go. I'm yep. quite familiar now what's actually happening yeah, in the so Jail, more so than ever. You've got not just the eight people that were hung at that jail, but you've got all the people that were on death row. Mm. And I know I've taken my children through after the changes there and just reading some of the stories of those people and the reasons that they're on death row, they seem like – trivial, minor reasons, some of the things that you're either now, you wouldn't probably even go to jail for, and some of those people were on death row. So that whole cultural understanding of what was happening in a different time, they won a silver award for that overall interpretation. I think it's a really positive change that's been made to the, cha- yes, the jail there. Yes. Uh, but the zoo, the Western Plains Zoo, Taronga Western Plains Zoo, picked up two gold awards, one in the major tourism category and the other one in the unique accommodation category. Mm. And they were obviously stoked with winning those awards. So, Who are, are they actually up against? Like, Do you know any other of the groups that uh, they compete against? Like the Jail for Argument's sake, with the cultural award, like, what other major tourism uh, attractions around New South Wales would it have been up against? Yeah, I was there on the night and I heard them announce the finalists in each okay, category, yes. but I can't remember off the top of my head That's the names right. of some of those other ones. What actually was a really positive thing was that our region did very well. So not only did Dubbo win some awards, but in as finalists or as winners, there were other tourism operators and other tourism entities that were mm-hmm. in Mudgee and Bathurst and Orange. And we actually had on our table just randomly a couple of people from Bathurst and our, ours was a silver table. We won three silver awards at our table, two from Bathurst and the one from Dubbo. Fantastic. But again, what it highlighted to me was there is an incredible strength in tourism out in this region. Now, Mm. these tourism awards were across the state, so you could have been up the coast, down the coast, in Sydney, wherever, but awards were won. It seemed to me, and maybe it was a little bit of that confirmation bias, but it seemed to me like there were a number of regional, in this region, entities that were winning awards or mentioned as finalists. And that was, I thought, a pretty positive thing there. And, look, again, it was really positive for the whole region. The minister responsible, Ben Franklin, was there, and Ben was recently out in Dubbo because he gave us $5 million for our Radri Cultural Tourism oh, Centre. Yes, yes. So it was good to have Thank a... Thank you, Ben. Uh, yeah, that's right. Good to have a chat to him, and he jumped in some photos with us. But I did actually make mention of that to Ben, that mm. we kept hearing places out around our region regularly through the award ceremony, which he agreed with. Now, he might have been being polite, I'm not sure, but certainly he seemed to think that was the case as well. So that was a really positive thing. 
And it was, look, congratulations to our team. We had mm. some of our staff there as well, so congratulations to our team. The zoo had four of their staff members there, including Steve Hinks, the GM of the zoo. Oh, yes. yes. So, again, it's a big event. There's probably 450 people there in the room, yeah. so it was pretty exciting to be there as part of that. Absolutely. And look, I just ask the question in regards to, is Mayor of Dubbo, you've obviously gone along to this event and you feel as though it's important for you to be there. It's, there may be people out there right now thinking, why is the Mayor turning up to a, a tourism event? Like, isn't that just for the people who should be associated with that? So why do you feel as though it's important for you to be at these events? Yeah, it's a good question. And one thing, when I see these events, I'm always thinking, whatever I'm spending, whatever money I'm spending, I'm I'm not spending my money. I'm spending mm. your money. I'm spending the ratepayers' money sure. yeah. of the region. So can I justify that? Value for now, money sort of stuff. Yeah. That's right. In this particular case, obviously I knew we are up for a, as a finalist for an award. So I thought there was a chance we're winning an award. And mm. we had some of our staff along there. And I thought it's really good for me to support our staff being there. But I think some of these things, you never know who you might see, who you might connect with, what networking you might be able to achieve. And I didn't know Ben Franklin was going to be there. Mm. But having Ben Franklin there was a bonus, be able to chat to him and tell him how we're progressing with our Rajri Cultural Tourism yes, Centre. Yes. He just had Dubbo in his mind then a bit further. So I think those sort of things are important, but you don't always know what you'll get out of attending an award ceremony like that. Mm. And it got driven home to me, one of the other people that was there from another area, another organisation, he came over to me and he didn't really know me, but he knew I was Mayor of Dubbo, mm. and he said, gee, I'm impressed that you're here. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I look around the room and I said, I don't see many other mayors here, but I, f I think that it's really impressive that you're there supporting your community. And so it wasn't even just about the Elderbo Jail being yes. a council-owned function. He, he noticed that on stage, the Western Plains Zoo, when Steve Hinks was giving his acceptance speech, he did a, a shout-out while he was on stage to the Mayor of Dubbo being there. Yeah. And there's a very special person in the room tonight. It's the Mayor of the Dubbo region. Mr Matthew Dickerson, stand up and take a bow. And this particular person said to me that he thought that was significant as well, that the zoo, being a state-owned entity, still felt like it was significant enough that the mayor of the community was there to give a shout-out there. So I think it's really that show of support, that show that this tourism or these tourism activities are really important to our community. So it's hard to say that me spending money on being there, me spending your money on being yeah. there, gives a direct outcome the next day to Dubbo. So do I justify it in the direct outcome? Probably not. But can I justify it in the bigger picture, in representing the community, being there as a representative for our community? Absolutely. I feel very comfortable spending money on, on being there. Now, it just so happened that there was a meeting I had to be at Sydney the next day anyway. So I probably was going to fly to Sydney. It was sure. an early morning meeting the next morning. Yep. I was probably going to fly to Sydney the night before anyway, so I just flew a bit earlier than normal. So there wasn't really a lot of extra expense. There was a ticket to go to the award ceremony. Uh, I just think for the money that was spent on that, me being there, flying oh, the flag for Dubbo, and again, several conversations with different people, yep. people from Mudgee I spoke to, people from Bathurst I spoke to, just really that warm, fuzzy feeling around all of us there, yeah, I think it was worthwhile and, and I'm quite happy to justify it. Happy to hear feedback from the community thinks it's not justified, but we're not talking about a lot of money here. We're talking about a couple hundred dollars maybe yes. at most there. Well, I think it's fantastic, Matt. Well done. Now, during the week, you had the opportunity to speak to a number of uh, council CEOs and directors at a forum where you addressed the whole nature of affordable housing. Now, obviously, this is um, a big question right now. I was actually down at the coffee shop, uh, my favourite coffee shop in town the other day, and 
was there happened to sort of uh, be listening to a conversation where a young girl there was talking about saying, look, I'm going to wait another six months before I buy a home here in Dubbo because I want, uh, I feel as though the market's going to continue to drop off in the next six months. I'm sick of renting. Is there anything at all that we can do as a council here in Dubbo to actually assist people in regards to getting into the market from the affordability? One of the really tough things for local government, in my experience on local government, is that the community expects local government to solve every problem. Mm. And one of the things that's really important in my belief as any level of government, whether you're local, state or federal, is to know the things that you can have an influence on and know the things that you really need to ask another level of government to help you out on. Public housing is one of those. We do have a process for people to get public housing, people that can't afford to get normal housing. And the state. So how does that work actually, Matt? How does, how do well, we do I that? don't know because okay. the state government runs that. No, so okay, the state yeah. government is entirely responsible for providing public housing. There's, I often hear about a waiting list. But because it's not something council is deeply involved with, I don't spend a lot of my time and effort trying to understand how that works in detail because I've got enough things to focus on in local government. And so it's one of those things. Focus on the things that you know you can influence. Mm. Now, affordable housing is another one of those things. Can we be influencing affordable housing? And again, sometimes people put public housing slash affordable housing in one bracket. It's not quite right, but certainly council can probably have a bit of an influence on affordable housing in a slightly different way. And we've had a few things, and I did talk about this at this particular forum, we've had a few things that have snuck up and made a real difference here in Dubbo, and it's happening in lots of regional areas, but I'll focus on Dubbo for a start. Sure. We had, well, we've had for some time, low interest rates. So normally if you just had low interest rates, you'd probably say, well, that probably helps house prices increase a little bit because people are able to afford a little bit more, so they're happy to spend a bit more. On top of that, then, we had a little pandemic came along. Mm. So that made people say, well, I might move out of a metropolitan area, move to a regional area. I feel more comfortable in a regional area. So that by itself might have influenced a Mm. bit of the house pricing. Then we had this whole discovery around technology that you've got the ability to work from home. Mm. And that didn't matter if your home was five minutes away from your office or five hours away. So suddenly regional areas became hotspots for people to move to, which again is fantastic. I would also argue that people were looking for areas that were progressive, looking for areas that had shown in the past that they were quite nice places to live in. And so we had the Evo Cities marketing campaign that started way back in 2010. And we've been marketing seven regional cities in New South Wales to say what great places they were to live. And we were getting quite successful with that marketing. We were Mm. getting lots of people moving because of that. But in the back of people's minds, all that was there. And then suddenly when they had low interest rates, COVID-19, work from home, oh, I remember I saw some ads about Evo cities, suddenly regional locations started getting all these people moving there. And to give you an idea about the change in the median house price in Dubbo, and I went back and actually had a bit of a look at that from 2007, because obviously we had a bit of a crash in the housing market in 2008. So went back to before that, all the way through to 2022. And if you look at a graph of that, it hovers. This is the annual change in the median house price in Dubbo. Mm. It hovered around 7% way back in 2007. Then it dropped to just in the negative in 2008. Right. And then kind of 6%, 5%, a drop down again, 0, 6, 5, 6. It sat around those sort of numbers along many years. And then 2021, it jumped to almost 18%. Yeah, right. 2022, 14% or over 14%. So that's significant change. So you've got those things that added up. Yep. What that has done 
is suddenly those people that were on the lower end of the spectrum for being able to afford a house, suddenly it made housing unaffordable in a community like Dubbo. And one of the things that's been our strength over the years is being our affordability. But the median house price right now, as we speak, Mark, mm. $520,000. You know what? That's, that's a significant figure and great if you own a home. Fantastic if you own a home. I suppose the, the, the people out there who don't, like the, the young lady at the coffee shop in that situation, um, again, where is there anything at all that we can possibly do from the point, I don't know, maybe rezoning certain land areas? Is, is that potentially an area where we can uh, battle axe blocks and people can have those type of options type down the track? Is there situations in regards to maybe costing of land re- but there's the new land release uh, options that have just opened up around the place. Is there anything there that council can do there that may be able to create opportunities there for affordability? So we've got a devious solution. Okay. In the past, we've tried a few different things. Now, council has owned a large chunk of land at Keswick Estate. They bought that back in the 70s, a large bit of farmland, believe it or not, all that area where there's lots of housing now is all farmland. Mm. And so one thing you could do as a council to try and deliver affordable housing to your community is say, we've got all this land here, we'll sell it for... Half the normal price. We'll, we'll sell all this land incredibly cheap. That'll deliver affordable housing into the market. But when we've seen examples of where that might have happened in other areas, mm. what effectively happens there is it distorts the real market prices. Okay. So suddenly, people who have got their homes and they've invested in their homes over the years, it drops the price of those homes because suddenly land is very cheap. The other thing is it turns away external investors. If I'm an external investor, I want to come and invest in some land development, and I look at Dubbo and I say, gee, the council's selling blocks there for $50,000 or $100,000. Well, I need $200,000 to break even for my block of land. Well, I'm not going to go and invest in Dubbo. Mm. So it actually means that you get less housing in the market, which creates its own problem. So it's almost like counterproductive in doing it that sort of a way. Absolutely right. Okay. And so they're a bit of a problem. But the other part is... We've tried in the past, we did some ballots. And I remember this is way before I was mayor, I was Mm. a councillor on council, and we said we're going to release some land blocks, but we're going to do it as a ballot for some of those blocks at a very cheap price. And what we found with that was, and I actually remember asking the question of our council of the day, just a bit of a, a, a thought bubble question. I said, so are we in land development to make money for our council to save on rates for our community, mm. or are we in land development to provide cheap housing for our residents? And the answer I received back from the councils in general of the day was, we're in it for both. And I didn't actually understand the answer because I don't believe you can be in it for both. I don't mm. believe you can say, we're going to maximise the profit we get from this to make it better for our ratepayers, but we're going to give cheap housing to our ratepayers mm. to make it better for them because those two seem slightly well, opposed. Well, what you just sort of said then, I, I can't see how you could do that either. No. So we did do a ballot there at one stage. We did actually have that. Okay. And they were incredibly oversubscribed. So we might have had, and I'm only going to go in memory here, six blocks of land, put in a ballot, and we said, you've got to have certain criteria, first homeowner, wage below a certain amount, but you had to qualify for that and then put it in. But we received hundreds of applications mm. and we had six or whatever it was to pull out of a hat. So it meant you definitely created some winners and losers. You had six very happy people and hundreds of very unhappy people. Mm. The other part is that the state government has got access to all the data to provide public housing. So if you come along and say, I want public housing, then they say, we know enough information about you to say that you do or don't qualify for that. We just don't have that access to that information as council. So it made yeah. it very difficult. But what we've found is there are some ways that we can create affordable housing. And part of the solution here is let's not try and deliver cheaper housing to our residents because we've got all those problems that I've yep. mentioned briefly there. Yeah. If we just simply create an environment that creates more housing, 
then the macroeconomics of supply and demand okay. will mean that you will get housing at a more reasonable price. When you've got tight constraints on your housing, as we have at the moment, not enough housing, mm. then supply and demand says prices mm. go up, and those people at the bottom simply can't afford to get into that affordable housing. So what are we doing? Well, we did talk about one last week, that northwest uh, yes. release area. So we've got some long-term planning. We've got a roadmap, actually. That roadmap was went through council back in about June this year that talked about what's happening with our entire strategy over the next couple of decades. What that does is gives you some confidence with investors. So investors say, Dubbo looks like it's got their act together. They've got a definite roadmap. I feel confident in investing in Dubbo, which means there'll be better supply on the market. Those precinct plans, those structure plans that we've talked about previously, mm. letting people know what you've got in those. So again, that confidence in the investor market. One of the things that we're going to reintroduce, one of the things that I think worked really well last time I was mayor, was a developer forum, or we had multiple developer forums. Anyone involved in development, so as a developer, a builder, real estate agents, and our development staff would gather together in a room once every quarter, and we'd talk about development things in general so that people understood where we're going. Mm. Now, I've mentioned that at Sydney forums when I've been talking to Sydney groups of councillors or councils, and they've been horrified by that. Yeah, they've said, that? oh no, what a great area for corruption. Putting developers and your staff in the one room together, surely that brings out corruption. Now, we do have a sign that says, leave your brown paper bag at the door when you come in. <laughs> but the reality is, if I'm going to go in and try and bribe a council staff member, and I don't think any of our staff members are able to be, to be bribed, I think they're yes. very good, honest people. But if I was going to do that, doing it at a forum with mm. 50 or 60 other people, probably not the smartest way not to do it. Not opportunities for a secret squirrel moment on that one. Not really. So I feel quite comfortable having all those people in the room together. Mm. And you just get an idea of where the market's headed. We used to get presentations from some of the developers, presentations from some of our staff, but letting people know what's happening, giving people confidence to invest in our market. So we're going to reintroduce those developer forums because I think okay. that they used to be very successful. The other thing we did was recently we've talked about it where we did some auction of some blocks of land. Now, we didn't sell all those. It wasn't an incredibly successful auction, but it still was successful in setting a benchmark for the price. An auction is a great way to deliver mm. what the going price for something is. Yeah. And what we found as a result of that auction is that some other developers in Dubbo dropped their prices to meet where the market okay. was at. So yep. that actually helped so our affordable a, yeah, housing. There's the upside there. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Now, and, and you also mentioned that little part about infill. Education is an important part of this. Letting people know, in South Dubbo, for example, some people have got large blocks, they've got 1,200, 1,600 mm. square metre blocks. Depending on the exact zoning, and I don't want to get into specifics here, I'd still ask you to go and talk to council or sure. someone about this, but many blocks of land on those larger blocks have the ability now to do what would be called a granny flat. Secondary dwelling is the technical name, but mm. the old granny flat. You can do it to 70% of the size of the primary dwelling with and that's mostly, I'm talking gen generic terms here, but mostly in most of the zoning you've got, you can do that to 70% of the size of the primary dwelling. So that means you could build an infill development, which is a cheaper way to go because you're not having to pay for that block of land, not having to pay for all the headworks charges for all the infrastructure. Okay. You've already got that in place and yep. you can actually have some developments done at a fairly cheap price. The two other things I want to mention there, one is that we're actually looking at some accelerated infrastructure. So areas where we know that they've got the ability for land to be developed, not just by council, but by other developers, where we know over the next five or 10 or 15 years, there'll be land developed. So we'll connect the underground infrastructure, we'll bring mm. roads into those developments. 
we're actually looking at a way to accelerate that infrastructure so that developments that aren't right next door to another development can start to happen sooner. Yeah. So that means that some of those things can happen a bit sooner than they would have in the past. Again, more supply. And the last thing is 3D printed homes. We've talked briefly about yeah, that. Yeah, we mentioned this the other week. Yeah. yeah, getting that concept of 3D printed homes yeah. out there, that's generated a lot of interest in the market and I think we'll be able to deliver 3D printed homes cheaper than a traditional built home. So all of these things, even mixing up the land sizes, so mm. having a development that might have some 800 square metre blocks, some 1,000 square metre blocks, but having some 600 square metre blocks mixed in amongst that because mm. obviously they're a bit cheaper. So lots of things council can do without trying to be a player in the affordable housing market, without trying to be a player in building homes, just by increasing supply, increasing investor confidence. Lots of things we can do. They sound like lots of piecemeal solutions to get together to a big picture solution. I can see the whole idea of the bigger picture sort of idea of that too. Now, just a little bit of a side to that. You mentioned about this whole idea of trying to increase the supply. Now, I do know there's there's a couple of developments that have been wanting to sort of you know get established. There's there's one there in Macquarie Street. There's there's the there's the estate there set up there by private developers uh, off Palmer Street, that sort of an area. Is there a time frame that any of these guys have to, to do these, to actually create these estates, to build these buildings? Is, does council have, you know, once you put that application through, do they have a certain time frame they have to have these things built? Like we're talking about trying to increase the supply. Yeah. Is, is, is there a time frame on this? There is, but there's a little bit of a way around that. Okay. So if someone puts in a DA for a particular development, whatever that might be, when you get that DA approved, you've got five years to act on that, which is a fair length of time. The problem is that you've got five years to make a start on that. And by a start, I don't mean driving a peg into the ground. You've mm. got to actually do something of reasonable significance in that. But once you've made a start on that, you've almost got an endless time frame to actually do something with it. Okay. So the frustrating part from a council perspective is we would love some developments that we know of that have got DA approvals that yeah. are all ready to go. We'd love them to start. And we yeah. could say to those developers all day long, please get started. Yeah. But they're obviously trying to pick when is the best time for them to do that development to match in with their profitability outcomes sure. or the market demands. So we can provide all of this framework. We can enter the market in terms of development because we do own some land there, but we don't like to be in there all the time, just when we need to be in there. But again, some of those developments, I encourage those developers as much as I can mm. to really mm. make some of those occur. Yes. But there's nothing, there's no trigger we have that we can pull apart from that five-year one. But again, if they start some substantial works, then all bets are off and they can sit on that then for the next 10 years before they actually complete that development. But again, if we create the right framework, I think we'll get there in terms of being able to provide something of some more affordability just by increasing that supply. And obviously, that'll just decrease that demand ever so slightly. Oh, excellent. Now, Matt, as you said before, the reason why you're dressed up here today is because you've just come straight down from the Cheyenne Garden 20-year celebrations. Now, unfortunately, I was driving back from Newcastle this afternoon, so I didn't get a chance to get there. I'm really disappointed by missing out because it, it sounds like it was an absolutely wonderful afternoon. So talk me through it. How did the afternoon go, first of all? Fantastic for everything but my knees. Doing tea <laughs> ceremonies at my kneeling age. Down, well, you're sort of kneeling. kneeling down. Yeah, You've yeah, got okay. to kneel down to do the right thing by the guests from Japan. We had 18 delegates here and a delegation that came over. from yeah, Japan? Yeah. Wow. And so, yes, you're doing the tea ceremony. I did one yesterday afternoon with the Consul General and then did another one this afternoon with the delegation there. And, yeah, they did fast tea ceremonies, but still, you try so kneeling down. So what's fast? Is that 
five minutes, uh, ten half minutes? An hour, half an hour half skill. An hour. Like, a full point? version takes three hours. Wow. And I've done some of those in Japan. And oh, okay. wow, the, the knees still, I was a little bit younger then, but the knees still <laughs> take a bit of a beating. But we've had a, a great weekend. We've had a fantastic mm. weekend. A little bit more to go this week. But we've got this delegation over. The Consul General was here yesterday. We had the tea ceremony in the afternoon. Then we had a formal dinner last night. I'll give you a bit of background on the whole Shoyuan Gardens and the Jurian Tea House. The city relationship started way back in 1989. Mayor Tom Slattery, who's not oh, with yes, us, unfortunately, yes, yes, yes. he was the mayor of the day, signed a sister city relationship back in 1989. And 10 years later, they were celebrating the 10-year anniversary, but we had a delegation from Japan in Dubbo at that time to help us celebrate our sesquicentenary. So that was, try saying that word when you've had a few drinks. But <laughs> I like to say 150, it's much That's easier. Right. <laughs> That's right. So 23rd of November, 1849, Dubbo was declared a village. Mm. So 23rd of November, 1999, we were celebrating the 150-year anniversary. Mm. Now, Mayor Kaiwai was over at that time, okay. and he was having discussions about the whole concept of what they could do, Minakamo, a sister city, what they could do, to recognise in some physical way the city relationship. Mm. So he said, we'd like to give you some gardens, build some gardens for you, Japanese gardens, and we'd like to build a tea house for you. So it's obviously, incredibly generous, isn't it? Like, it is very did, did he generous. ask for anything back in return for this? No, and, and even to this day, I feel like we've received much better than we've given. Is that amazing? It is, and it's fantastic what we've got there, but there's a reason for it. They really love that introduction of the Japanese culture and people learning about that Japanese mm. culture. So I do feel guilty sometimes, but mm. we simply couldn't afford to no. do some of the things that they've done for us. So some planning started, and that planning resulted in some plans going to council. And about 2001, it was that the director at the time of Parks and Gardens was Ken Rogers. Yes. So Ken Rogers and the mayor of the day, Alan Smith, went to Japan, had some discussions with the mayor and Dr. Yamada, who was an influential person in Japan, but also someone that had a few dollars behind him. And so they looked at some of those plans and then they actually built the tea house in Japan. So there's a gentleman by the name of Mr. Itazu. Right. So he built the tea house in Japan with his craftsmen. Right. They packed that into two shipping containers, sent that over to Australia then Mr. Itazu came like over. The own version of the Eiffel Tower sort of thing being well, built in New York and shipped across to Paris. That's it's, exactly right, yeah. in a slightly smaller version. Yeah, absolutely. But Mr. Yeah. Itazu came across, they had six of his craftsmen came across with him, and they basically built the tea house that we see up there now, the Durian tea house that's mm. sitting there. And they also used gardeners from Japan, from Minakamo, to build out, in conjunction with wow. our gardeners, that whole area that we've got there. So it could now, not be any more authentic, could it? Well, that's one of the things that we hear on a regular basis. The authenticity of that tea house mm. and the gardens is not matched anywhere else in Australia. Now, wow. I'm a bit biased about that, but I have talked to various delegations that have come across and people do travel from Victoria. They travel from the ACT. They travel from around the state mm. to come and do tea ceremonies in our tea house because mm. it is so authentic. And again, even being built in Japan, that's fantastic. So yeah. that was opened on the 23rd of November 2002. Yep to, again, be as part of what we call Dubbo Day. Mm. And so that was officially opened there. Greg Matthews was the mayor of the day, oh, yeah, so that was yeah. officially opened there. And so this is the 20th anniversary that we're celebrating now. Mr. Itazu was here again, so it's great oh, for him to see. Yeah. How he, is he? Is he well? He is very well. He's a he's a bit of a character. He yeah. likes to – he doesn't speak much Australian, but you do pick up a few things from him, and he does seem like a bit of a character, a bit yeah. of uh, charisma about him. He Love just it. seems to really have a bit of a spirit about him. Mm. Uh, but he was here as part of that – 
18-person delegation. And people that I've met before when I've been in Japan, people that I've met before over here in Australia were there and some new people as well. And so it was great to see them here celebrating, but the people of Dubbo turned out as well. So mm. so there was heaps there this afternoon? Huge crowd there, Isn't which was fantastic. Wonderful? The weather yeah. was fantastic, was but a huge today. crowd there. And really just to acknowledge the wonderful work that we've got there, but the Japanese delegation were incredibly proud to see how good that looks. Now, remember that they send gardeners every year over. Again, all of this is at the expense of Minakamo. Well, so they no expense for us at all. These well, guys we, we have expense in terms of looking after sure, the garden sure, yeah. and our staff, but all of these things, when they send people over here, they do that at all Minakamo's expense. Mm. So that's fantastic. So they send gardeners over every year to look at the garden, to maintain it, but also to instruct our gardeners yeah. in the correct way to maintain that garden. So it mm. is an incredible asset that we've got there. We've actually got a street there called Minakamo Way, which right. leads down into the gardens in Japan, in Minakamo. They've got a Dubbo Way or a Dubbo Street with goes around because we've got a barbecue area. The mm. only thing that we've really given them mm. is some plants for barbecue, some barbecue components, and we've got a couple of bronze couple of kangaroos. Or something, or? Well, no, a couple of bronze kangaroos <laughs> that we, we did give them recently. So there's not much in terms of the no, expense that we spent no. on them, but they keep wanting to give. And even in this particular delegation, they gave us a scroll. And one of the people that comes up from Sydney on a regular basis to do tea ceremonies told us about this particular scroll and who wrote the scroll and, and who did that. And it's a person who's passed away now, but he mm. said the rough estimation of that scroll would probably be worth $20,000. Wow. So we'll use that in the tea house on different occasions because yeah. we do have different ceremonies to go through. But I just find all this extraordinary. It is extraordinary to have it. that generosity there and to see it go along. Now, the mayor, we've mentioned before, the mayor couldn't make it across this time. There was a problem with his visa, but mm -hmm. he's very keen to come across. And again, I, I've met the mayor. He has been across before and we'll go across. We'll probably get exchanges happening again with students. We'll probably try and take a delegation across next year. Fantastic. And again, any time we take those delegations across, it's a council policy that council does not pay for those people going across. So when I've been across before, when we've had some of the people, some of our residents in our sister city committee, anyone that's travelled across to Minicama before, it's always Private at their expense. own expense. Yeah. That's right. And that, I think, is, again, a show of how committed we are to that relationship, that we're not expecting council to pay for that. Mm. We're doing that at our own expense. So mm. a wonderful relationship there, a wonderful weekend we've had there. They've yeah. had an absolutely wonderful time. And again, from their perspective, they love people coming along, using that tea house, visiting that, that garden, because they feel that people will learn more about Japan, more about mm. Japanese culture, and more about Minakamo. So yeah. again, not people, many people would know where Minakamo was. When you go yeah, to Japan, yeah, yeah. it's not the first place you think of, but they'll learn about that and be more interested because they've come along to this particular tea garden, tea house and mm. the gardens there. Well, I'll tell you what, if, you, uh, if you're organising something for next year in regards to it, I'll put my hand up. I think that sounds like a wonderful group of people to go and associate with over there. And you're right, and there's two people who are on this trip, uh, people... Uh, Yumi is one of them, and mm. Smiley is one of the other people. That's not his proper name, but he's a Brazilian. He was—he's got Japan Japanese parents, but he grew up in Brazil. And he's—I've never met someone who smiles so much. So he's oh. been a wonderful asset to their trip. So it's been great to catch up with those two in particular on this trip. And I've had two of my children when I wasn't mayor. I might point out that went on across on exchanges. I didn't yes. have any of my kids to apply for that while I was mayor because I thought that was inappropriate. But <laughs> once I wasn't mayor, two kids went across and they were had very fond memories of both yeah. Julia and Andy across there in Japan and, and both Yumi and Smiley wanted to talk about ah. the contribution that they made while they were there. So for students on those exchanges, we'll start those exchanges again next year. Brilliant. Absolutely take advantage of that potential that you've got there. Well, again, well done to everybody involved in today's celebrations. <laughs> 
the local leader breakfast. Now, I'm going to have to sort of uh, put a disclaimer on this one because I must admit I have never been to one of these local leader breakfasts. That's that's my bad. I'm sorry about that there, Matt. But I tell you what, though, this, there's a bit of interest, though, about these in the community in regards to it. And look, from a layman's point of view, someone sitting back, if I was to go down there, and this next Sunday, I think, is the, the next time uh, this is going to be held, what would I expect there? Is there an opportunity to sit down and chat to uh, all of the local leaders? And from that point of view, who are the local leaders who will be there? Um, and what type of discussions normally take place? It's one of the things that when I was mayor last time that I had this feeling that sometimes people in the community felt like there was a bit of buck passing that happened. Someone would come along and then ask about public housing, for example, and mm. I'd say, sorry, that's not council responsibility. That's a state government responsibility. You should go and talk to the state member rather than talk to me about that. Mm. And it felt like I was passing the buck, but it was something that I just couldn't control. So very simply, there was no point for me stressing about it because I just can't do anything about it. Some people approached me one time about fixing up the exchange rate between Australia and the US because it was oh, affecting their superannuation. Hey, hey, I'd go. love to be able to I know you're that. talented, but I didn't think you're that talented. <laughs> That's right. But again, <laughs> it's not even something that local government's involved with. Yeah. And again, just going through that and, and making people understand that. And so it dawned on me that one thing that we could do was to have the three levels of government side by side. So in other local, words... Local, state and federal. Correct. Yep. So had the state member, at the time it was Troy Grant back in those days, had the federal member who was Mark Colton and still mm -hmm. is Mark Colton, yep. and then have myself and councillors and then some of the senior council staff mm -hmm. and basically have an open forum. People can come along, talk to us, ask questions, give us ideas, whatever it was they wanted to do. And I talked to both the state and the federal members about this. Yep. And I must admit, they were pretty keen to get on board. They didn't run away from it. They didn't think it was bad to expose themselves yep. to the public. I talked to my fellow councillors. They were pretty keen on it. So we started doing it. And back in those early days, we basically did it three times a year. Every four months, mm. we'd put on a breakfast somewhere and we'd say, come along and talk to us. And we had lots of fascinating conversations. And there are some confusing parts about who's responsible for different parts. Mm. So it was good to have all three levels there. And sometimes yep. people would ask me about something and I'd say, that's actually a federal government responsibility. Come over here and talk to Mark or yep. talk to Troy, whatever it might be. Those dropped off, unfortunately. And, and actually, at the time, sorry, we researched it a bit and we found nowhere else in this nation were all three levels of government on a regular basis in an open forum together. So we so couldn't find it anywhere just, else. Just say that again, because that's a big point you just raised there, is the fact nowhere else in Australia nowhere does else. this ever happen. Well, it so doesn't you, happen. you get those three levels of government, local, state and federal, all there together at the one moment to have a chat to. In that open forum on a wow. regular basis. So you might find there are times when there's an opening of something and all three levels are there side by side, but it's not really that open forum and it's not regular. Yep. So it dropped off, unfortunately, and once I've come back, I said, look, I think that was a great idea. Let's do it again now. We've got a new state member now, not Troy Grant anymore, yep. Dougal Saunders. Yes. So I spoke to Dougal about it. He was keen to jump on board, didn't hesitate. And, of course, Mark Colton was happy before and, and did it again. And the only slight difference this time is that Wellington actually sits in the same state electorate as Dubbo, so in Dougal Saunders' area, but it's in a different federal area from the Dubbo area. So, so right. yeah, Andrew G for Calair ah, is the member okay. for Wellington as opposed to Mark Colton for yeah, right. Parks in Dubbo. Anyway, I spoke to Andrew G. He was keen to do it as well. Okay. So we now do it, and again, it's that same sort of time frame. About every four months we do it, but we've also got to do Dubbo and Wellington because yep. we've got the difference there with yeah, Andrew G okay. and, and with Dubbo with Mark Colton. So the next one coming up is on the 26th of November. Yep. So we'll have myself. We'll so have, that's next Saturday. That's 
it depends when people are listening to this. Sure, but, that's a good point. But yeah, yeah sometime, yes. hopefully they're listening to it this week and this day. Yes. If you listen to it after the 26th of November, then there'll be another one coming up in a few months' time. But <laughs> Four months down the track, that's, that's right. That's right. But uh, again, this will have myself there, fellow councillors yeah. there, it'll have some senior council staff, we'll have Dougal Saunders there, we'll have Mark Colton there. Mm. And the idea is that you can walk up and just say, hello, you can say, I'm really happy with this, I've got this great idea, I'm unhappy with this, whatever it yeah. might be. We do it from 7.30 to 9.30 on a Saturday morning right? because we want people to be able to come along before they go to sport. Maybe they've gone and done park yep. run, they come down afterwards, whatever it might be. This come is at down the Dubbo Rotunda? At the Rotunda, so it's easy to get to in the middle yep. of Dubbo there. We've tried a few at different locations. We've tried them in Victoria Park, for example, in Dubbo. But we've just found the Rotunda's that good central spot. Mm. We even put on a free breakfast, some free coffees for people. So oh, awesome. come along, you have a bit of breakfast, have a bacon and egg roll maybe, yep. have a coffee, have a bit of a chat. We normally get anywhere from, say, 60 to 100 people turn up. Okay. but And the, I couldn't tell you the different things people talk about. There's so many different yes. things that people talk about. But I think the really important thing about it is not just the fact that we do it, not the fact of how many people we get, but what I hear people say to me is, I love the fact that I could come down. Mm. You stand there in an open forum, happy to accept any questions from anyone about whatever they want to come along and talk about. Yeah. We love how open you are about that ability. And I've said that to people mm. about what have you come down for? I've never been down there, a bit like you, yes. but I love the fact that I could have gone down. Yes. Gee, that's wonderful. Well, how often do you hear people whinge, complain, groan about the fact, oh, I just can't see my state MP. I can't see my federal MP. I, I don't know what, yeah, the mayor, he's too busy. I can't see him. Yeah. Here's the opportunity. Exactly right. Bang. And again, people talk about anything. Now, we don't necessarily say we can solve all the problems mm. on the day, but at least we can follow up, we can take some information, we can give you a bit of direction. Sometimes people mm. just have a simple question, they want an answer to it. Sometimes we can give them that on the spot. Mm. But again, it's just that open forum, all three levels. I think they're absolutely wonderful and encourage people to come along. So 26th yeah. of November is the next one happening in Dubbo at the Rotunda, 7.30 to 9.30. I hope to see a big crowd there. Absolutely. Now, mate, we're sort of going to move on now to a, a performance review that actually happened during the week there. Now, this is, uh, of course, the Dubbo Regional Council CEO slash General Manager is, of course, Murray Wood. Now, Murray's been now in the job for one year, so this is his uh, first year in the job. Um, and in regards to, look, on a very personal note, I think he's doing a great job. That's just me. That's my personal review of Murray. <laughs> um, but from the point of view of how does this review work, is is this something that is a make or break for Murray or is this just something that we do like a normal, if you're in any type of management role, there's always the reviews you go through. So is it similar to what Murray's just experienced? So it's a good management practice. You're quite right. In any occupation, hopefully managers are reviewing their employees on a regular basis and they've got some sort of formal process to do that. And with a, a CEO or general manager, it's something that is recommended. It doesn't have to be followed. And it is something that I am a big fan of. And go back to my last time as mayor, Mark Riley was the general manager. And certainly every 12 months we did a, a formal performance appraisal. And the people on that, typically you'd have the mayor, the deputy mayor. And then at those stage we had two standing committees. So you'd have the two chairs of those standing committees. And we'd go through that formal appraisal process. And then every six months, in between those times, basically, I'd do a one-on-one performance appraisal, 
review just to make sure that things are tracking along nicely. Yep. Now, you're quite right. Murray was employed on an interim basis okay. at the middle of last year. Which is a fairly standard thing for a lot of management in that situation, is it? Or is well, they needed to bring someone in to help out. Council was in a bit of trouble in the yep. middle of last year. So they brought in Murray on an interim basis. And you can do that for a maximum of 12 months. Okay. You can't go longer than that. You could get special permission from the minister. But typically, when you're on an interim basis as a CEO or GM, no more than 12 months. But council last year made the decision that they would go out and advertise for the job, they'd go out and try and find a general manager slash CEO, and they did that, they went through the applications, and then they appointed Murray mm. in, I think it was either late October, early November last year. Okay. So it's the one-year anniversary, roughly, of that at the moment, so that was the perfect time to do that yep. review. And I won't go into the detail of the no, review, sure. that's a, a process, a confidential process. Absolutely. But the important thing that I think is important for residents to understand is that we've got over 500 permanent staff at council, councillors are not allowed, and this is the Local Government Act 1993, mm. are not allowed to direct any staff apart from one, which is a CEO. Right. So if I see someone yep. working down the street, doing some shoveling, someone in the office, and I start going and directing that person, that staff member of council, to You're do something... You're breaking the council laws. I'm breaking that. Now, it used to be before the Local Government Act 1993... Mm. The mayor and or councillors, but typically the mayor, could direct staff. Right. But that changed because it meant that from a staff member's perspective, it was quite difficult. You mm. almost had two bosses. Yes. You had your normal hierarchy within a council, your normal management structure in a council. Yep. And then the mayor would come along and say, right, Mark, I want you to go and do that. But hold on, my bosses. No, yeah. I'm the mayor. You go and do that. So they changed that, which made sense. So then it became the councillors employ the CEO. The councillors can direct the CEO, and typically you direct via council resolution, right. not just ring up and say, hey, Murray, I'm directing you to go and tell yep. the staff member to do it's something. It's a process, absolutely. It's a process. Yeah. So you direct them via a council resolution, and you leave the way for that outcome to be achieved up to the management skills of the CEO. Mm. So in other words, we might say, hey, Murray, mm. we want you to fix the potholes, but we're not going to tell you which staff to go and fill hmm. which potholes. It's his job to do that. Exactly right. Yep. Now, if we said to Murray, hey, go and fix the potholes, then Murray would say to us, I don't have the budget to fix all the potholes at the moment. Where do you want me to take the money from? Which other function of council do you want mm. me to take the money mm. from to go and fix the potholes? So there's got to be that common sense process. And every yes. time there's a resolution that comes to council, a notice of motion to council, the councillor bringing that notice of motion has got to identify roughly the cost. They don't always know the exact cost and where that money is going to come from, what part of the budget that money is going to come from. So you don't get people putting forward silly motions that are going to cost a lot of money with no way of actually funding that. Mm. So it's a process. So the performance okay. appraisal, again, we now do it with the mayor, the deputy mayor, and there's three chairs of committees. Okay. So you have the performance appraisal. We have someone come in externally from an employment solutions organisation, yep. and we sit down and go through that formal review process. It takes a fair bit of time. Mm. It probably took about four hours this week to go through that. We look at what we believe is Murray's performance and the performance of the council in general because that reflects on Murray in terms of how mm. he's doing his job. Mm. So that's been done. Again, I won't go into the detail of that, no. but I think it's important for residents to understand how all that process works. Oh, absolutely. Now, also during the week, uh, there was a financial performance committee meeting that was held and I actually find this quite interesting because council looks as though have employed a new staff member 
who is looking at creating more of a business focus on each of council's enterprises. So I'm assuming the fact that over the course of the years, uh, a lot of council's enterprises, I don't know, let's just say something like maybe the airport or um, running maybe the Community Information Centre for argument's sake, these type of operations, probably more about a council-operated, community-based type of scenario. But you're looking here at possibly running this more in a business operation. I'm assuming trying to make these operations more profitable. Is that the general outcome? Yeah, that's part of it. And if I just talk about the Financial Performance Committee for a start, sure. one of the committees that we've introduced in this council is that Financial Performance Committee. One of the issues that we identified when we got onto council this new group was that the operating result of the council over the previous three years had been negative $20.3 million. Mm. That's not a great way to run any business. No, you're and run even though pretty quickly, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Even though that doesn't mean council's about to go broke tomorrow, we've got mm. enough reserves to handle that. Well, we couldn't keep going on like that. And so one of the things we talked about as a group of councillors is we've got lots of things to do, but unless we get to the stage where we're in the black or at least break even is what you ideally want, mm. then we're going to be in a bit of trouble. So we created a committee to really fine-tune our focus on our financial performance. So we've got that committee and that committee meets on a regular basis and talks about different aspects of that. And this week we had a meeting of the Financial Performance Committee and exactly as you said, we've employed, and not we, this is one of the things because we've directed our CEO to improve our financial performance, one of the ways he's decided to do that is to employ someone who does have a business focus on our business activities. And we've got a number of those. So you mentioned the airport, for example. Mm. That's a business function. We've got the sale yards. That's a business right. function. Yes. We've got a caravan park. We've got a childcare centre. We've got things like our water treatment plant, our sewage treatment plant. We charge money for these things. Okay. So these are all user pays. We've got our aquatic leisure centre. Yes. So that charges money. We've got our Western Plains cultural centre yes. and we've got a cafe in there. So mm. you've got all these different functions. People don't realise just the number of things that we've got that we have user pay. So the rates that you pay are a small part of the general income for council. We get more money from other components, other things that we do and, and other grants, mm. etc. than we do just from our rates. But what you're saying there, though, is the fact that was it last financial year said these areas have run a $20 million loss. Is no, that, over the previous three years, oh, the, previous three, the okay, overall operating result for council has yeah. added up to a negative $20.3 million. So right. that includes all of these activities, includes everything that council's been doing, okay. has been a net loss of $20.3 million. Mm. So again, not a great financial no, outcome. No. We believe that some of these business functions could be sharpened up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think councils do well is long-term strategic planning. Fantastic. But in terms of running a business where you've got to be maybe a little more agile, a little bit more flexible, mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard for council to do that as well as they do the long-term planning. And sometimes it's because our staff have got to work under the local government award. Things like our jail, if we want to put the price up for our entry fee at the jail, that's got to go through a council resolution and a budgetary planning process rather than just if I own that business, I go, gee, we're not charging enough for this, we'll put the prices up. So It's quite an extensive process too, isn't it? It is, and yeah. that's one of the things, if, if I'm running a business, I want to be more flexible and more mm. agile, but I can't do that if I'm running so a council business. is that what business. this guy's looking at doing, is looking at trying to sort of... Yeah, go through these processes because I would imagine some of the stuff that you, you can't touch Correct. in regards to some of these processes are probably set down as part of the law and the bylaws. But there, I imagine there probably are some, as you say, sharpen up a little bit in some of those areas. So There are some natural constraints he will still have yeah. when he looks at some of these businesses. But again, and that's, that's one of the problems with council 
running any business. You've got some constraints that you just can't get around. So mm. you're probably never going to be as good at running a business as an external entrepreneur. But this particular person, his job is to think about these things entrepreneurially. So the first thing he started to look at, he's looking at the airport just to see what we can do there. Are there other income streams? What else can we do there with the airport? How else can we run that and still generate money? And one of the things with the airport is we used to make good money with the airport when we had 200,000 passengers a year. COVID came along, mm. knocked those numbers down fairly significantly. Mm. So maybe one of the ways to generate more income from the airport is not charge individuals more, but just get more people flying. How do we do that? So there are different ways you can look at that. Same with any business. There are a few ways to make more money. One is to increase the number of customers you've got. Yeah. One is to charge more or one is to reduce your expenses. So just looking at that fine tuning of that. And what we really want to do is say, we think some of these businesses we've got either some that could make more money mm. or some that are losing money could we re reduce those losses or actually get it back to where it's in the black. Mm. Again, that'll be the focus. And there are different components, different business components that this particular person will look at over time. So it's not like yeah. look at everything yeah. all together at once and just see what you can come up with. It's yeah. look at one, focus on one, see how that business operates. How can we fine tune that a bit more? Look at the next one and yeah. keep focusing on that. And basically go through all of those and probably cycle back around and start yeah. the process again. Because I'd imagine it'd be a balancing act too because there's certainly the the need for obviously to, uh, we don't want to be running at $20 million losses over three years and I imagine COVID probably impacted to a certain extent, say like the airport in those areas, but you don't want to be running at that negative loss all the time. So I can certainly see the benefits of wanting to do this. I'd imagine some people in the community might be going, yes, but isn't also part of what council needs to be doing though? Some of these businesses we need to be supporting financially and their whole aim is not to be running at a profit? Is that a fair call? Well, not, not the aim to be not running at a profit, but the aim is to be providing a community service. So the swimming pools, for example, off the top of my head, our three swimming pools lose about $1.3 million a year. Mm. Now, for people that use our swimming pools, that's fantastic. But if you're someone that doesn't use a swimming pool, you'd say, well, gee, I don't really need them to be spending $1.3 million on our swimming pool. They could spend that money better somewhere else. So you're right. There are some things that we will still provide to the community that are going to run at a loss. Mm. There's no doubt about that. There are some things that we just can't simply do or run those services and make a profit on it. But instead of losing 1.3 million, what about if we only lost 1 million? Yep. That's the same as a business increasing its profit by $300,000. Mm. So if we can reduce those losses or sure. increase the profits, it's the same outcome we're trying to get council to a much more financially sustainable position yes. so that we don't have to put rates up. As an example, Armadale at the moment is going through a process where you, you've got to go through a fairly extensive process, do a special rate variation. They've applied, or no, they haven't yet. They're in the process of applying for a 50% special rate variation. So 50%. rates would go up 50%. In one over, year? No, over a three-year time right. frame, 50%. That's a fair slug. So now, it's a big jump, isn't it? We don't want to do that at this stage. That might be something we have to do at some stage down the track, but we believe we can do some other things a bit mm. differently to try and avoid a 50% rate rise because that seems like a lot to me, yeah. but it's not it's not just Armadale. I'm picking on Armadale a bit there, but there sure. are other councils across the state. I've had discussions with various mayors and councillors that they're looking at various rate rises, significant rate rises above a rate pegging or a CPI amount. Are there other ways we can do it? So to your point, yes, there'll be some services we provide. And so I don't want to scare our residents saying that suddenly everything's going to be increasing mm -hmm. in price dramatically, but are there better ways to run some of our businesses? What else can we do to make sure that we are running those the most efficiently. So it's not about putting the prices up. It's not about cutting all our staff out sure. of that. It's about looking at the efficiency of those businesses and how we can run those a bit better for mm -hmm. ultimately the benefit of all our community. Which at the end of the day is what most businesses do anyway, don't they? Exactly right. 
Now, Matt, uh, last night, of course, uh, we've suddenly got here in Dubbo two new world champions. Of course, we're talking here about Isaiah Yo and Matty Burton. Now, last night, they uh, absolutely demolished poor old Samoa and uh, got them up 30 to 10. I must admit, though, I, I do love the way that I've been listening to a bit of the radio today and the way that the Samoans, the Australian Samoans, have reacted. And, boy, they're up there singing you know, the National Anthem of Australia and just it's a real sense of camaraderie and spirit. So it was really done the right spirit, I suggest. But getting back to the whole point, though, here we are in Dubbo now, two new world champions. How good is that? Yeah, it is. And I think they're really good representatives Aren't of our just? community. Absolutely. And, again, yes, the fairy tale for Samoa. They couldn't quite pull off the fairy tale. When you no. come up against Australia, they're just so clinical. They're so good. You don't need to make much of a mistake and that's it. They're all over you. So yeah. I think they blinked. I mean, there was that incident there with James Tedesco having his foot on the line in that 40-20 kick, which could have oh. been a really great attacking spot for Samoa. Yep. Yep. And then Samoa blinked and they were down 14-0. Oh, it's a game of inches, isn't it? It is. But I actually did send a message to both Isaiah and oh, Matt. Yeah, and just said congratulations. Have you heard back yet? Or they're celebrating, yet. I'd imagine. I think from the time I sent the message, they would have already been in celebration mode. <laughs> and I'm, I'm probably sure they're either sleeping at the moment or still in celebration mode. But I just wanted to say to them, on behalf of the community of Dubbo, it was a congratulations to new world champions, as you say. And Isaiah played in the final. Matt didn't play in the final, but he played in an early game. So he's still part oh. of that squad. So I have no qualms at all about calling them both of them mm. world champions. But I, I did say to both of them that they are wonderful representatives of Dubbo. And to have two from the one community, mm. I don't know anyone else in the team or any other two people in the team that have come originally from the same area, in particular an area fairly small like Dubbo is, yes. playing for the same junior league team. Yes. Uh, I think that's absolutely fantastic. So I did congratulate them. On behalf of all the citizens of Dubbo, I said, we're very proud of you and we look forward to seeing both of them back here in Dubbo at some stage soon. So well done to both Isaiah and Matt and uh, it's great for Australian rugby league. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Double I think it's almost time now to uh, finish off our little podcast today, Matt, and we always finish with your limerick. So, Matt, what do you got for us today, buddy? Yep, well, my limerick goes like this. The Shoyuan Gardens always look so pretty. Well, thanks to Minakamo, Dubbo's sister city, we celebrated 20 years and acknowledged our volunteers and thanked the delegation from the Mayor Committee. Well, Matt, that's wonderful. Well done again. Well done again. All right, folks, that just about wraps up for another Merrill Memo podcast. Until next week, take care.